0: How have the landscapes of New York, London and Paris been shaped by dog ownership? And how, in turn, have dogs affected the lives of those who lived and worked in these urban centres? These human-canine relationships are at the centre of a new book by Chris Pearson called Dogopolis, How Dogs and Humans Made Modern New York, London and Paris. Our digital editor, Eleanor Evans, spoke to Chris to find out more.
2: Chris, your book explores the role and presence of dogs as workers and pets and pests and beyond in the 19th century and 20th century in three cities, London, New York and Paris. Uh, and it's got this title, Dogopolis, and I wonder if we can start there. Uh, could you give us a sense of this term,
3: what, what it means? Yeah, thank you. and Thanks very much for having me on the podcast today. Yeah, so the term um, Dogopolis is it's this idea that dogs and cities um, have this very, very close relationship. So dogs have lived in cities for um, thousands of years and they've helped shape cities and they've been shaped by urban life as well. So I wanted to really um, drum that home that yeah dogs they have a presence in our cities as do other animals like cats, pigeons, rats, flies and previously of course horses, cows, pigs all part of urban life. So that's what I was trying to get across that title. I also suggest Dogopolis as being a kind of an agreement, a way of living in the city that was formed in these three cities, London, New York and Paris, between the middle classes of these cities as as an acceptable way for dogs to be integrated into urban life. So dogs had to be united, with their owner either kept in the home or kept on a lead or or leash uh, in the States. So there was a a general um, attempt to drastically contain, if not eliminate, straying or street dogs from the city. Dogs also had to be clean and hygienic, so pet dogs were increasingly encouraged to eat well, to be groomed, to be kept clean. But also, ultimately, dog owners from the 1920s and 30s onwards were being asked to pick up or at least prevent their dogs from fouling on pavements. Another really strong middle-class value of urban life um, in the late 19th, early 20th century city was this this call for humanitarianism. So suffering had to be reduced in the city and the middle classes saw themselves having an obligation to to reduce suffering, suffering and to make the cities a more moral place. So this also influenced the ways in which humans live with dogs and the street the street dogs under this um, framework had to be killed in a supposedly huma- humane, humanitarian way. Another way in which Dogopolis was created is that dogs had to serve a purpose in the city. That was either through... Having a pet, so we might think that having a pet is a luxury or is frivolous or just a bit of fun. But in the 19th century, pets were increasingly considered to be integral parts of the family. They were emotional. Pet dogs were emotional creatures who could help stressed urbanites deal with the rigours of modern urban living. And dogs also had to serve a purpose in another way. So here we see the emergence of police dogs, dogs who were being trained to, to fight crime which was another major middle-class fear. So yeah, in summary then, I suggest Dogopolis as this way of, this agreement, this way of living that the middle classes negotiated amongst themselves in the late 19th century and early 20th century.
2: I I wonder if we can go... um back a bit further than the scope of your book for a second and just maybe introduce listeners to the history of pet ownership, if you're happy to, and just say when did dogs first start holding this sort of position in homes, in
3: middle-class homes? Yeah, so pet keeping stretches back centuries. And here my Medieval colleagues and early modern colleagues would be much better placed to say exactly when that happened, or even even those colleagues working on ancient history. So yeah, pet keeping goes back yeah centuries, but I think really what happens in the nineteenth century is that you have kind of some of the frameworks, some of the ways of living with pets that we recognise so much today. That's when it really started to be to started to crystallise. Whether that was vets who started offering their services to pet owners, so the pet's dog had to be healthy. Whether it was Spratt's dog food, so this was uh, created by James Spratt, an American who was inspired by allegedly inspired by ships biscuits whilst walking around the docks in London, who believed that dogs should be fed in a rational, healthy way. So he developed this dog biscuit. So modern day kibble, which um, my puppy is currently um, currently eats, yeah. So Sprats and other companies arose to sell products, whether that's food or collars or clothing or beds to pet pet keepers. So I think what you ha- what's happening in the nineteenth century is you kind of get this, you get the the new the vets, you get the growth of consumerism, but also you get this, this rise of the, the celebration of domestic life amongst the middle classes. This idea that the home was this private space that had to be treasured, had to be protected, and it was the job of women to keep the home safe, happy, comfortable, and so on. And pet dogs really kind of slipped into that, that domestic realm. And historians like Kathleen Keat and Harriet Ritfoe, they've really shown how pet keeping dovetailed with this domestic sphere. So yeah, I hope that answers your question. So yeah, pet keeping is is centuries old, but it's really in the 19th century that the kind of the framework, the practices really start to form and take shape.
2: I find it fascinating uh, as a dog owner myself of, you know, walking your dog on a lead and picking up their mess and how these elements have evolved. And you cover them in in. Uh, five sections. Um, And if we can go to the first one, which is uh, straying, Uh, I'm interested in the link that you draw between straying and how that became linked to supposed immorality of of a lower class or an underclass. Um, Can we touch on how stray dogs were perceived in the period that you're talking about?
3: Yeah, definitely. So um, there had been rules and campaigns and laws rather against um, straying or street dogs before the 19th century. But I argue based on my own research and the work of other historians, that uh, street dogs came to be seen as increasingly dangerous, diseased, and degenerate. Partly, this was because of rabies. So in the rapidly urbanising cities um, of the 19th century, doctors, vets, middle-class commentators, journalists, all worried about the spread of rabies in the city and biting dogs. And rabies, of course was an issue for for street dogs those dogs that lived on the street it was also an issue amongst pet dogs as well but street dogs came to be seen as the spreaders of rabies so they were spreading it was believed they were spreading this disease throughout the city and anyone could be affected by it so um, yeah the street dog came to have seen us diseased. It also came to have seen us dirty, and this touches on what I mentioned earlier, that pet dogs were increasingly clean, hygienic, well looked after. The street dog was seen as being dirty, so scruffy, flea-ridden, noisy, disruptive, all these things that the middle classes wanted to, to drive out of the city. And it's quite interesting, if you read some accounts by journalists who visited the dog pounds of Paris and New York, or the dog's home in London, they often really make a distinction between the lost dogs that have been gathered in these homes who were owned, so they look clean, they had a, of a recognisable breed, and then, as they called them, the out-and-out street dog who was seen as scruffy, potentially rabid, um, and of no breed. And this, this question of breed is also really important. So, at the end of the 19th century, there was the, the rise and the codification of um, scientific racism and the idea that humans were fundamentally biologically different according to their race. At the same time, and linked to this, was the rise of the dog breeds, in which kennel clubs and dog breeders tried to map out and codify, categorise dogs into particular breeds. And these dogs, these pedigree dogs, were seen as being pure, were seen as being well bred. Representing the best of of dogdom, whereas the street dogs whose breeding was not controlled, they were of no determinate breed, so they were seen as being degenerates, a sign of decline, a sign of the breakdown of society. So, yeah, there's all these all these um, various issues came together to make street dogs um, seem like an unwelcome presence on um, on the streets. And one thing I should also add too is that. In the modern city, mobility had to be managed. So you see that in the rise of um, traffic control systems and so on, but also in the rise, the way in which street hawkers, beggars and others are also being increasingly regulated. And vagabondage, tramps and so on in the city, they were increasingly unwelcome. And this kind of bled into some of the, the fears about street dogs to make street dogs seem even more unwelcome.
2: Okay so if that was um the rhetoric towards strays then in these three cities London, New York and Paris I guess um, modern sensibilities might be quite different and come at it from a welfare point of view when do sort of um welfare organisations or charities start to sort of uh, develop it for looking at dogs
3: Yeah that's really important developments that I tackle in the book and other historians have also tackled the rise of animal protectionism in the 19th century and how this was linked to the wider humanitarian movement to try and reduce suffering. And there's some debate amongst historians about whether animal protectionists were mainly concerned about the welfare of animals, or whether they were more concerned about the working classes being cruel to animals, and therefore spreading cruelty and immorality amongst the wider population. I kind of think it was a mixture of the two, and I think there was a genuine care and desire to improve the welfare of animals. So some animal protectionists, they wanted to, to rescue all street dogs. So they didn't want to kill any street dogs. Other animal protectionists began to really distinguish between pet dogs who deserved care, compassion, and street dogs who were ownerless, who were diseased, degenerate, All those all those things. They deserved elimination that's what some of the animal protectionists felt. So you'll see that in some of the dogs' homes in some of the um, shelters, dogs were, were killed because they couldn't be rehomed and animal protectionists felt that they weren't, they weren't worthy of, um, of protection. So yeah, it's a really kind of complicated story. I think, again, it comes down to this split that was being made in the 19th century between street dogs and between pet dogs.
2: Yes, that makes sense. That's really interesting, that differentiation between the value depending on um, human alignment. It's a very interesting um, factor. And I wanted to ask uh, about the You've already mentioned it—the the, the threat of of rabies that was linked into fear of of these stray dogs and then potentially their their bite as well. You cover a, a section of your book on this. First of all, I had no idea that the hair of the dog—the the saying "the hair of the dog" came from a previous treatment. I wonder if we could start there.
3: Yeah, with rabies, it's obviously a very scary disease. Um, also, one that's that's really um, fascinating as well. And like you said with that saying, the hair of the dog. So the idea was that if you you took the hair of the dog, the dog that bit you, then that might be a rabies, that might cure rabies. Yeah, it's part of the the kind of the folklore and um, the popular beliefs around rabies. So in the early 19th century, there was a massive debate about rabies. Was it spread by some kind of virus-like agents or did it arise spontaneously in dogs who are too hot or dogs who are too angry or too emotional. So there's this big debate, just as there was a big debate about how to cure it. So some doctors, well, they all, they all stress keeping the patient, the human patient calm. Others suggested they um, had warm baths or they took alcohol or the various other, other cures that were put forward. So it wasn't really until Pasteur, Louis Pasteur, came along in the mid-1880s, with his rabies treatment and the, the wider acceptance of germ theory, that there was a hope that this disease could be treated. But rabies, was it's really fascinating how it just sparked so many anxieties. I think it really spoke to those, those tensions and those worries about urban life. So here, here was a dog, supposedly the best friend of, of man or of humans, but yet it could um, it could render humans mad, make them bestial, make them lose their mind and ultimately kill them.
2: And this fear of rabies, was that a split as well uh, in a similar way, a, a, a long sort of owned dogs versus, was it exclusively, if people were afraid of a bite and of that rabies um, factor, was that, does that mean they were afraid of all dogs or did you, we see the split again between strays and owned?
3: Yeah, that's another really good question. I think we do see that split between owned and ownerless dogs. And yes, yeah, street dogs, the dogs of the poor, were seen as spreading the disease um, more widely than, than pets, middle-class pets, domestic dogs. But having said that, some vets and some doctors did warn the middle classes to beware of their, of their pet dogs. I think one of them used the phrase poisoned kisses. So this idea that dogs could could show affection to their owner, but if they had rabies and they they bit them accidentally, that might spread the disease. Yeah, but on the whole, I think there is this real split between owned and ownerless dogs. Another thing I should say too is that there were middle-class commentators who, who also attacked pet dogs for spreading rabies, who particularly blamed women, female dog owners, who were seen to have too much affection for their pet dogs. And this, they were too close to them, too intimate with them, and this placed them and others in danger of rabies. So again, it's a, it's a kind of complicated, um, complicated story.
0: Still to come on the History Extra
3: podcast. But once people start using bins, once there are street cleaners, once the horses are replaced by buses and cars and, and so on, then the streets, and the streets also paved, it's what I kind of see it as a, a blank canvas for dog mess. So, dog mess became much, much more evident on the pavements, and doctors and some counselors um, and others started to really worry about it.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging
2: And alongside dogs' sort of establishment in this domestic sphere, there's a new role for them in the 19th century as well in urban security. Could we talk a little bit about that section of your book and how that developed?
3: Yeah, totally. So, I mean, guard dogs, again, have been around for centuries in cities and, and elsewhere on farms and so on. But the 19th century sees the rise of the police dog, the late 19th century. And this is partly because police forces start to be created in the 19th century and new techniques such as fingerprinting and and so on, these are also created. So yeah, there's a rise of the police force, but there's also greater fears around crime amongst the middle classes in the city. They're worried about often the impact of immigration or migration and how this is creating poverty and creating crime. Some um, police officers who are dog lovers, dog owners, they start to develop police dogs. And this starts out with bloodhounds and attempts to try to use bloodhounds to track down criminals. And famously, well, relatively famously, uh, bloodhounds were used against, uh, to try and find Jack the Ripper in London in the 1880s, um, unsuccessfully. But these the use of bloodhounds spread from Britain over to America. So the New York police force also introduced um, bloodhounds to try and track down criminals. But really, it's the, the rise of the, I guess, the all-purpose police dog, a dog that can maybe sniff down a criminal or could defend a police officer. These were developed initially in Belgium and picked up in France and also Germany, and also the States. At the start of the 20th century, various police officers start training dogs, writing books about how to train police dogs with ever more complicated things the dogs have to perform, whether that is, yeah, jumping over walls or picking out someone from um, a group of suspects. And yeah, these, these are announced, these police dogs are announced a great fanfare in the press. There's a lot of hope placed on them that they will help solve crime. But very, very rapidly, there are these doubts that emerge. There are worries that the police dogs haven't been properly trained, that they're not intelligent enough, that despite dogs being one of the most intelligent creatures on the planet, that they still have this instinct to bite or to, to chase cats or whatever it might be, that they're still not fully, fully trained. And this again links in with the fears about rabies, that maybe police dogs would bite innocent bystanders, and would again create nuisances, dangers in the city. So quite rapidly, there was the decline of the police forces in police dog units rather in the in the interwar period between the First World War and the Second World War. And it's only in the post-war period, so post-1945, that uh, um, police dog units are uh, established in London, Paris, New York, and other cities on a much more firm footing.
2: So another development then in the interwar period, which I must say I was quite surprised as it seemed quite, quite latent and, and recent to me, I suppose, was the attitude to or sorry, legislation towards dog defecation. What happens there and how does that change these urban areas you're talking about?
3: Yeah, so dog mess is, well, as we as we all know, an issue that causes a lot of tension, a lot of alarm, and also many, many people find it a real nuisance. But yeah, as you said, this is quite a recent development. So in the, the 19th century, the main fear about dogs was rabies. That's what people were most worried about in terms of the health risk. Posed by dogs. Also, city streets in London, New York, and Paris were much messier than we are used to now. So, they would have horse manure. There are thousands of horses in the city. So, manure on the streets, the sewage system wasn't um, as advanced as it is today. Street cleaning, again, was only really starting to to take shape in, um, in the late 19th century. So, yeah, the streets were much, much messier. But once People start using bins once there are street cleaners, once the horses are replaced by buses and cars and, and so on, then the streets, and the streets also paved. It's what I kind of see as a, a blank canvas for dog mess. So dog mess became much, much more evident on the pavements and doctors and some counsellors um, and others started to really worry about it, worry about the parasites, worry about the mess it created. I think it's really interesting, dog mess, because it shows that Although dogs have become increasingly domesticated, increasingly clean in the 19th century, early 20th century, they still, they still leave this mess and they still kind of raise issues about whether or not dogs are really adaptable to city life. In the interwar periods, you get doctors and councillors and others starting to legislate, so bylaws against um, fouling in Kensington and Deptford and other boroughs in London. There are also campaigns against dog mess in New York, the Curb Your Dog campaign run by the Outdoor Cleanliness Society, which is a group of mainly um, middle-class women who were trying to make the city a cleaner, healthier place. So they launched this campaign. But lack of resources, and I think also indifference amongst dog owners, didn't really lead to many changes. It's only really the 1970s, 1980s that more strident campaigns were taken against against dog mess. New York's 1978 poop scoop law is the kind of often seen as the kind of the the founding moment in that more recent history of dog mess.
2: And I also wanted to ask, uh, looking at these sort of three urban areas, these three cities alongside each other, obviously there are lots of developmental uh, similarities. But are there any sort of key differences between these disparate cultures that struck you in terms of their treatment of dogs? I know it's a big question.
3: Yeah, it's a a big question, but also it's. um, I think it's a really good one as well. Yeah, so lots of similarities, like you said, whether that's through the spread of medical ideas in journals or individuals like James Spratt going between different cities or dogs travelling also between the different cities as well. American breeders bringing British dogs over to the United States. So yeah, there were all these flows and similarities, absolutely. But yeah, I think there were key differences. I think one of them was that the British saw themselves as being at the vanguard of... Many of these processes, whether that was having the first animal protection society, the RSPCA, whether it was um, having the Dogs Home, the creation of um, what is now Battersea Dogs Home as a more humane way of looking after street dogs, also the the Kennel Club as well, which started in Britain and then spread to to other countries. So I think that's one key difference. The British saw themselves as the kind of at the, at the forefront of these developments and were to many extents seen as such, by, by people in other countries. But I think a major difference is the influence of um, Pasteur, who was obviously greater in France, but also in America as well. French expatriate doctors in New York, they helped bring Pasteur's ideas, his techniques, over to, um, to America. And there was a New York Pasteur Institute that was created, which didn't happen in London. The British had different ways of dealing with rabies, which, and here's another key difference, so rabies was eradicated in 1902 in Britain and lasted much, much longer um, in France and and America. Other key differences, I think, were were also police dogs. And in London, there were attempts to create units of all-purpose police dogs, but they weren't very successful, whereas in London and New York, much more firm police dog units were um, created. Yeah, but I think on the whole, I would stress that there are the similarities between these three cities outweigh the differences.
2: So it, it sounds like this period is is really essential to understanding a lot of factors that modern day dog owners and and um, dog owners in, the, in certainly Western society certainly might take for granted um, today. And I wonder if we could talk about your work more generally. You've got a blog called Sniffing the Past, but what uh, helps you to zero in on this period in particular when you're looking at dog ownership history?
3: Yeah, so like you say, there's a much, much wider history of dogs. What I was interested in here was kind of the rise of Western dog ownership and dog keeping and human dog relations. And of course, London, New York and Paris are such important cities in Western culture and models for, other, for many other cities in North America and Europe. And I think it was this period of the 19th century, early 20th, early 20th century, that was so important because this is when cities were expanding rapidly, rapid urbanisation, industrialization, new forms of architecture, the skyscrapers of New York, uh, the early ones being built at the start of the, the first decades of the 20th century. So this is a, a period of huge, huge urban change, which is really important. And it's also really important in... In human dog relations as well in the West because you have, as we've mentioned earlier, the rise of the Animal Protection Society, you have the rise of small animal vet practices, you have Pasteur's treatment for rabies uh, or vaccine for rabies rather in the, in the 1880s, um, the rise of the dog pounds, the dog homes. I think I mentioned kennel clubs, but they're also in there as well. The police dog unit. So this is a time when Cities are changing rapidly. And I think that Londoners, New Yorkers, and Parisians are also trying to work out new ways of living with dogs in this particular time. But I should say that Dogopolis, I think, is a model that applies to to Western cities. But I think in elsewhere in the world, there are different ways of, of living with dogs. So Western colonialism spreads animal protection societies to India. And elsewhere. It also spread kennel clubs, police dog units. There's a recent blog on sniffing the path that discusses the use of police dogs in, um, in colonial and then apartheid South Africa. So these ways of these Western ways of living with dogs spread around the world. But also at the same point, the way in which we live with dogs in the West is, is quite unusual in many ways. Street dogs are far more accepted in, in other countries. And also celebrated as such as well, whether that's, you know, the the dogs of uh, of Istanbul, um, which are also now being celebrated on screen, or street dogs in Indian cities, which are much, much more integrated into into urban life and treated as um, valid citizens within, um, within the city. It's going to be really, really interesting to see the ways in which Dogopolis kind of spreads across the globe, but also the ways in which it's challenged and the ways in which it's rejected. In, um, in other cities.
2: Uh, and you're, am I right in saying that your current research or future research is, is on street dogs in India in particular?
3: Yeah, I'm working with um, colleagues um, at Edinburgh and also in Australia, Australian universities, to on a Welcome Trust-funded project on um, rabies and street dogs in India. So looking at the colonial period right up to the present day. The ways in which life has changed for street dogs, the different ways in which people have thought about street dogs, also different ways of, of approaching rabies. And this is an important Indian story, but I think it's also a, a transnational story as well. Whether that's um British colonial officials trying to cull dogs in India or the establishment of pasta institutes in India, this is also a, and also current global campaigns to try and eradicate rabies to create a, a rabies-free world by 2030, uh, this is—it's all, all suggests how this Indian story is part of this, also this wider global story as well.
0: That was Chris Pearson. Dogopolis, how dogs and humans made modern New York, London and Paris, is published by the University of Chicago Press and is available now. You can find a link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tune in tomorrow when Dan Jones will be sharing a spooky tale from the Middle Ages.